Of all the wild wildlife encounters I've had, and I've had quite a few, there's no doubt gorilla tracking is one of the most powerful. We learn in school that mountain gorillas share about 98% of their DNA with us, but it's not really until you see them standing in front of you in the dense forest, nursing their baby, beating their chest in a show of male dominance, or in my case, slamming their fists down in your lap, <laughs> that you truly understand just how similar we are. And chimpanzees even more so. I remember trekking in Kalanzoo National Forest in Uganda with a dozen chimps playing in the trees all around us. I sneezed, and then a moment later I heard an identical noise come from a chimpanzee in the forest. It blew my mind. In a super lucky twist, I actually went gorilla trekking three times last year, in Rwanda once and Uganda twice. Each experience was completely unique, and each time I felt like I gained not only incredible insight into the animal world, but I somehow came away learning something about human nature too. I know you went gorilla trekking in Rwanda, Eric, so would you agree? I absolutely do. Even when you plan an entire trip or your whole year around a morning trek to see gorillas, the experience still takes your breath away and is worth traveling halfway around the world for. I'm Catherine Remine, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Eric Rosen. This is Conscious Traveler, our podcast celebrating sustainability, conservation, culture, and community around the world. By sharing our stories and those of fascinating experts, we aim to help you make your next adventure more meaningful and memorable. I went to Rwanda last year and got up at dawn to hike up one of the ancient slopes in Volcanoes National Park along with a few rangers and porters. We passed by villages of tiny farms just before entering the park and were heckled by some cheeky golden monkeys who were observing us from the bamboo trees above. After about two hours of strenuous uphill climbing, we found the family group that we had been assigned and just settled into the bushes to watch them. An enormous silverback was eating leaves and decided to sit down right next to me. I don't think I have ever been as frightened or as spellbound. He eventually moved off, and we followed him to see where some of the females and their babies were snacking on plants and playing and going about their day. An hour in their company was just too short, but at the same time, it left me with a lifelong impression. I know the feeling. Gorillas really are such incredible beings. Fortunately, a few years ago, their status was downgraded from critically endangered to endangered. But as a species, they're definitely not out of the woods yet. Building upon the legacy of visionary researchers like Diane Fossey, who brought awareness to their plight when it was most critical, gorilla conservation is really a case of tourism helping to accomplish a tremendous amount of good. Not just because of the tourist interest and dollars coming in, but because of just how carefully it's managed by dedicated people in Uganda and Rwanda. The fact that visitors are able to safely observe gorillas in their natural habitat on an unforgettable trek and spend an hour face-to-face -face with them has helped increase both awareness and their population, as well as decreasing poaching and helping the people who live around the parks by providing them with more means to earn an income and support their families. There are three countries where mountain gorillas can be found. Uganda, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the latter being the least accessible to tourists. Uganda offers perhaps the most access, with permits costing $600 compared to $1,500 in Rwanda. There's so much community development happening around Bwindi Impenetrable Forest too, where the majority of the country's gorillas live. Uganda's neighbor to the south, Rwanda, takes a somewhat different approach targeting high-end international visitors with the continuing development of luxury lodges around Volcanoes National Park like Singida's Quitonda Lodge, as well as in other regions of the country. But the two nations share some resources too when it comes to science, research, and the issues facing conservationists. This year, COVID-19 has upended many of these efforts. 
In addition to finding out more about conservation concerns and initiatives in general, we wanted to know just how detrimental COVID-19 might be to the progress that has been made in both countries in the last decade. First, we're looking to Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka, a Ugandan expert on the matter, to explain the domino-like chain of events COVID is causing. Apologies in advance for our poor connection on Zoom. We are here with Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka who is the founder and chief executive officer of Conservation Through Public Health. She is a wildlife veterinarian and conservationist working and living in Uganda. So Dr. Gladys, we wanted to speak with you about gorillas, and that's something that you obviously know a tremendous amount about. Maybe we can start with you telling us what are the biggest threats that are facing mountain gorillas in Buindi Impenetrable Forest in Uganda right now. Thank you so much for inviting me on this interview. I'm actually in Windy right now, <laughs> so it's great to be having an interview here. The biggest threats to the gorillas in Windy are habitat loss because there's a very hard edge between where the community is and the park, and there isn't much of a buffer zone, and there's a very high population growth rate. Disease is another bit because we're so closely related to gorillas, and people and gorillas can easily make each other sick. So those are the two major threats. Other threat is poaching, and this is poaching not for gorillas in Windy, but for other animals that people like to eat, such as small antelope like daika and bush pig. And gorillas get caught in snares set for these animals, or sometimes they get killed when poachers are in the park and they're trying to catch these animals. So those are the three main threats to the mountain gorillas in Windy penetrable forest. And are those problems worse or more intense at the moment because of what's going on with the COVID pandemic? Obviously, there's no tourism happening at the moment. And so conservation efforts and personnel are maybe struggling to keep up with, you know, guarding the animals, patrolling the parks and things like that. And the people who live around the parks are probably having more of an issue making their living day to day at the moment. Has all of that placed increased pressure on the gorilla population in Uganda at the moment? There's two kinds of pressure which are specific to great apes. Because we're so closely related and can make each other sick, we're worried that people can give them COVID-19. And gorillas have ever picked up other diseases from people, and mountain gorillas specifically, and also other great apes like chimpanzees. And so we're worried that when people come to visit them, and make them sick. So even the park staff who visit them every day to check on them to make sure they're healthy and they're safe have to be careful that they don't make them sick. And so we've done a lot of training of their masks and maintain a 10-meter distance from the gorillas during this critical time of the pandemic, as well as making sure they're not sick, coughing, and their temperatures are taken. But another big threat which has happened because of COVID-19 is the fact that no tourists are coming because primary tourism was stopped due to the fact that, you know, people can make gorillas and the government of Uganda was worried about people making each other sick. So we've had lockdowns just like everywhere else in the world, which meant that nobody's allowed in the park. And a lot of the communities had really grown to depend on tourism. Some of them have given up farming and just for tourism. And it was the only revenue that they were dependent on and relying on. And so with COVID-19, suddenly it went from many tourists to no tourists and people are really struggling. And so, of course, they have to turn to the forest and they have to start finding a way to get food from the forest. And so poaching has gone up significantly. 
because of COVID-19, people are hunting, they're setting up snares because they're hungry. And sadly, we lost a gorilla because of a poacher was coming to check on the snares that had been set for dike and bush pig. And he came across a very friendly gorilla called Rafiki, which actually means friendly. And this gorilla, since he was an infant, this group was being habituated. And so he didn't know that this person was bad. And they came across each other and this person speared him out of panic. And so sadly, Rafiki died because of COVID. And this has actually made the park management realize that poaching is so high and they're doubling their efforts to do law enforcement, realizing that people are so desperate, but also they're calling upon groups like ours, Conservation Through Public Health, to help in engaging the cities and engaging the, the park, you know, helping with the reinforcing of law enforcement, but more importantly, engaging with the communities, which is something that NGOs can very easily do and something that CIT has been doing over the past 15 years. I know in our previous conversations, you've told us about just how big great ape tourism is in Uganda, that it was 60% of the tourism revenue for the whole country. And prior to COVID-19, it was like a $1.6 billion per year revenue that's directly tied to the chimpanzees and the mountain gorillas. And you've commented on how with the COVID-19 emergency or pandemic, the president of Uganda has been talking about our primate cousins in his speech and bringing this issue more to light. As you are a veterinarian specializing in mountain gorillas, and obviously as a human, you're like a bridge between both populations. So how do you feel this has helped you create mutually beneficial programs like conservation through public health. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with this NGO that you founded and what are some of your achievements so far and that are ongoing? Yeah, the COVID-19 pandemic is completely devastating and everybody has been affected in the world. But we started conservation through public health in 2003 based on experiences I had as the first veterinarian for the Uganda Wildlife Authority where we had a scabies disease outbreak in the mountain gorillas. The baby gorilla died and the rest only recovered with treatment. And it turned out to be from people living around the park who have very little health care. And that's got it when they went into people's gardens to eat their banana plants, which is what they typically do when they've been habituated for tourism or research and they've lost their fear of people. And because it's such a small habitat, this probably used to be part of their former range before it was cultivated. So unfortunately, when we found that out, a few years later, we decided to found Conservation Public Health to improve the health of the people and the gorillas together. And this is an idea that was very new 70 years ago, and it was really difficult to convince people why it was important to address human health and great ape health together, gorilla health, chimpanzee health, or any other wildlife related to people. And then, of course, we also realized that diseases can also spread from animals to people. And when we set up siege, we're looking at zoonotic diseases that can spread from animals to people and from people to animals. We're trying to prevent disease transmission in all directions. So we found that it wasn't actually just the great apes that were a big problem when it came to this issue, that were facing a threat, but also all other kinds of wildlife. You know, when people eat bushmeat, eat wild animals, they can also get sick. And so we thought that this NGO should look at preventing disease between people and livestock. And now with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's made people really understand what we're trying to do from the beginning. But over the past 15 years, we've set up a lot of structures addressing this issue. And one of our programs is a guerrilla health monitoring program, 
where we have a gorilla health and community conservation center that every month we collect fecal samples from gorillas that are habituated for tourism or research. And we analyze these samples to look at diseases they could be with the people or livestock around the park. Then we also have another program, which is a community health program with a focus on One Health. And we engage community health workers. In Uganda, they're called village health teams, and we teach them to do conservation work. So we have a a whole set of village health and conservations that go to people's homes, talk to them about being healthy and hygienic, talk to them about family planning, because there's such a high human population growth just outside the park, which is affecting the as well. They also talk about zoonotic diseases, how we can prevent disease from animals to people and from people to animals. And of course, people don't want to make the gorillas sick because the gorillas are bringing in so much tourism revenue, which is lifting them out of poverty. They really understand that message about not making gorillas sick. And so we work closely with them and they educate the communities There's about why people shouldn't poach or collect firewood. But also they identify homes that are regularly visited by gorillas and the gorilla guardians or human gorilla conflict resolution teams who safely had them back. So we work with those three sets of people. And most recently, we added a set of people. And that's the reason I'm in Windy right now. And we realized that we really have to work with the reform poachers. Uganda Wildlife Authority created a group of reform poachers. And these are people who they were repeatedly arresting. And still they realized that we need to find a way of getting them completely change their livelihood of hunting and poaching. People agreed to lay down their tools and stop poaching, but they had to find them an alternative. So they asked us if we could help. And we already engaged one set of reform poachers, and now we're going to engage a second set. And we helped them last time with group livestock projects, and we're likely doing the same when we have a meeting with them tomorrow. But what's really interesting is when the COVID pandemic began in March, we had task Trust to engage reform poachers but all non-essential activities were stopped. And so engaging reform poachers in March seemed to be a non-essential activity. Little did we know. So what we focused on preventing COVID spreading between people and from people to gorillas, which was also a very essential activity. And we got permission to do that from the security, the government. Everybody thought that was the most important thing. But after we've seen the rise in poaching and sadly the killing of Rafiki in Nkuringo Group, the lead silverback of Nkuringo Group, the warden, the chief warden, I said to him, we have funding to engage reform poachers. That is an essential activity. It's become an essential activity for conservation. I mean, it sounds like this is an absolutely critical activity. So I'm glad that you're finally able to get that clearance. And really with your work, it sounds like you were already setting the stage for something like a pandemic to come about because isn't that how we got here with COVID-19 is this came from animals. And I think people all over the world are now realizing how much that can be a problem. So since COVID is a zoonotic disease, and this is now becoming very evident in the COVID pandemic and the fight against it. And I know you've pointed out too, but if COVID-19 were to reach the gorilla population, which is already small and is already threatened, that would just be absolutely devastating, right? As you said, they don't understand social distancing. You know, Gladys, what would that look like? COVID were to get into the gorilla population, it would be really a total disaster because First of all, gorillas move in a very close-knit way. A gorilla group is normally headed by a silverback, which is an older male from about the age of 15 who started to silver. And he heads the group and he has many females and the females have babies. So they move around in a harem. There may be a few 
adult males, which are younger than the silverback, but they're always moving together and they're always grooming each other. They don't know anything about social distancing. So if one gorilla got COVID, the rest of the gorillas can get it. So for example, this poacher who killed Rafiki happened to have had COVID, you know, we don't know whether the others would have been affected. It turned out that he didn't. Thankfully, the gorillas that remained, they've not shown any clinical signs. But this is something that is very worrying because, you know, once it gets into one gorilla group, that gorilla group will all get affected. And humans and gorillas share the same kinds of protein receptors, the same ACE2 protein receptors. So humans, great ape, old world primates, we all share the same receptors. So the way that COVID-19 has made us sick, the same kind of symptoms would affect the gorillas and it would be terrible. With a population that's only around 460 in Buindi impenetrable forests, 43% of the world's population of mountain gorillas, which is just over 1,060, it would be really a big disaster. Gladys, aside from, you know, COVID running rampant through the gorilla population, the killing of Rafiki demonstrates just how destabilizing and potentially devastating poaching can be. Because I think in a previous conversation, you mentioned that Rafiki was, you know, the head of his group, of his family group, and he was habituated to humans. But you're not sure who's going to take over the group now because there are several younger males. A wild gorilla who's not habituated to humans could take over and thus move the rest of the group out of contact with humans. And I think it highlights just how catastrophic even one gorilla death from poaching, which is not just a problem right now because of COVID, can be to the population. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, killing of the leader of a gorilla group is very devastating. And, you know, what happened to including a gorilla group who were worried about a wild gorilla taking over? Like what happened is that Rafiki had three other males who were not as old as him, they hadn't silvered yet. But what happened is the group broke up a few days later. Some of the gorillas left the group. So three of them went to another group that is ranging nearby, Christmas group, which had broken up originally from Kuringo group. And another three went to another group, which is also nearby. And then after a while, the male came back from Christmas group. So now Rafiki has 11 gorillas. It went from 17 to 11 gorillas in a couple of you know, weeks, just because the leader of the group died, which was really sad. And now it looks like the oldest male in the group is now leading the group. Yeah, so they're very devastated. But some of the females left because I guess they didn't think that whoever remained behind could put them. So it is really, really sad. And sometimes when something like that happens, when a female leaves with a baby and the baby goes to another group and the silverback of that group is not the father, a lot of the times he kills the baby because he wants to have his own children with this new female. But in this case, the mothers and babies stayed behind in Rafiki's group, so hopefully this will be safe. I think it's hard to understand until you've actually been face-to-face with gorillas in the wild, which Eric, you and I have been so fortunate to do, and Gladys, you've spent obviously so many days and hours and weeks worth of time with them, but just how human they are And the thought of a family breaking up over someone's death is like, it's truly heartbreaking. And it really, again, when you see them and you're watching them, it's like they're an extension of us. And the dynamics of that family are just feel like so important. It really makes you look at them in a whole new way. And it's like, they're not just animals. They're really so close to us that you also understand really why conservation of these great apes is so important. 
And I know we were talking about how Rwanda and the DRC and Uganda are the three places with mountain gorilla populations. And we're curious to know how you working in Uganda might interact or work with or in tandem or collaboration with other experts in those other countries to try to maybe learn from each other about how to have better approaches to conservation or protection, what you've learned or what you've maybe taught to them in trying to protect and conserve these incredible creatures. Yes, mountain gorillas are ranging in all three countries. And actually, the windy mountain population was discovered in the late 80s, whereas the Virunga one, where the late Dr. Dan foresee groundbreaking studies, was discovered much earlier. So we've learned a lot from the experiences of Virungas, although the habitats are slightly different. You know, in the Virungas, it's more like people are down and then you hike up the volcanoes to where the gorillas are. Whereas in it's Afro-Montain forest on steep hills. So you go up and down, up and down until you get oh. to the gorillas. <laughs> it's the real hike. So when the windy gorillas were confirmed to be mountain gorillas based on the genetic studies, they were exactly similar to the ones of Virungas. This was like in the late 80s. It was exciting for Uganda because, you know, Windy Penetrable National Park is only found in Uganda with a little bit touching DRC, Rambay Forest Reserve. And so we are always sharing knowledge and information. For example, the census of gorillas is done every four to five years. The Windy census was done in 2018, and our team got involved in the census. Part of the Pisarambwe, which is the DRC side where gorillas are found, and it connects to Windy Forest. And so even in Rwanda, whenever there's a census in the Virungas, you count gorillas in Mugahinga National, which is in the southwest of Uganda, bordering Rwanda and DRC. So these are two main mountain gorilla populations. They don't meet anymore because, you know, maybe they are separated a hundred years ago or more. And by building up in the area, infrastructure, so they will never meet, even if they're only separated by 45 kilometers. But it's all built up, all the whole areas up. But we share a lot of lessons. We share a lot of experiences. And we're trying our best to have the same missions in all three countries for things like tourism. For example, now the COVID-19 pandemic is making CTPH get involved in promoting responsible tourism, where we are developing a policy brief as part of an African civil society biodiversity alliance to basically get all the governments in Africa that have gorillas and chimpanzees to adopt these regulations. So that's something that we're all trying to do. And at the same, we have the COVID-19 contingency plan, which has been developed between Uganda, Rwanda, and the Republic of Congo. And that's being led by the International Gorilla Conservation Program, which works in all three countries. And the Greater Virunga Transboundary Collaboration is taking it to the government so that we all have the same regulations in all the three countries. And this includes what to do during pandemics like COVID-19, you know, all that regulations for opening up tourism, what should tourists do when they see us, you know, wearing of masks for the stuff we're going right now, maintaining the distance. We want everything to be uniform in the three countries so that the gorillas are safe in all the three countries. But also we learn from each other how we engage communities, how we carry out, you know, law enforcement, research, veterinary. We all learn from each other and in many ways. So because it's just two populations of animals which are very, very few in number. So we want to make sure that we do as much as we can for them. 
Dr. Kalema Zikusoka, on that note, I was just sort of wondering, what should someone who after, you know, hopefully COVID starts to fade and we get a little more control over it and travel starts to become possible again, what can someone who hopes to travel to Uganda to visit the gorillas and spend some time with them and experience it, keep in mind both to get the most out of their visit, but also to have the least harmful impact while visiting the great apes? Yes. One thing I'll say is that it's important for people to visit the great apes. It's important for people to come and see these animals because the money that they pay helps to conserve them and helps to make the communities coexist with them. Because if they know that they're going to get money from tourists who come, all of this enables people to feel that worth it living next to gorillas and they protect the gorilla. And so what you could do as a tourist when you come to Uganda (laughs) is to visit the gorillas and also visit the community projects as well. When you arrive, you should be very careful to stick to the guidelines, come with a mask or come ready to buy a mask from the local communities, which will actually support the local economy. We've taught them how to make masks in the right way, layered and you know, protective, and they're really attractive, different colors from made from local African bitenji, you know, maintain the distance, follow all the regulations, bring hand sanitizers, don't come when you're sick. We don't know what's going to happen in Rwanda when you track gorillas right now, because in Rwanda, gorilla tourism has opened. You have to have a COVID-19 test. And possibly in Uganda, when tourism opens, it's probably going to be the same until the vaccine comes around. But maybe the main message I have for tourists is to practice responsible tourism, which means you tread lightly when you're with the gorillas. Don't get too close because you give them COVID-19 or any other respiratory disease. Be willing to wear a mask in the one hour you're with them. Maintain the distance, which is recommended, whether it's seven meters or 10. You know, just do things in the right way. And at the same time, give back to the communities that have to coexist with the gorillas. Because when you support both the park and the community, then the gorillas will really benefit greatly. One of my favorite local social enterprise NGOs in Buendi called Ride for a Woman, I know are making beautiful masks by the hundreds. Actually, we engaged Right for a Woman just as the pandemic began in March. They were laying off all their, the women and their staff. And then Evelyn I called her and I said, can you make masks for the park staff? Because COVID-19 is here and they have to, to visit the And she was grateful to have some business because actually at that point in time, surgical masks had run out in Uganda. There weren't any remaining. It was an opportunity for her to make some masks. And this meant that the women were hired and there was less people who are likely to go into the park to poach. So that was really great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Gladys. We're really so appreciative for having you tell us all about the gorillas and we hope to see you there soon. Thank you very much. And of course, when you come to Windy, be sure to visit our Gorilla Health and Community Conservation Center and learn about how we look after the gorillas and how we engage the communities. That's also another highlight. We have the best view of Bindi Forest. It's just great to visit us and everybody gets motivated. Thank you very Uh, much. You've motivated me. I can't wait to get there and visit you in person. Thank you. Dr. Gladys really untangled just how easily something like COVID-19 would devastate the gorilla population and impact seemingly unrelated issues like public health and poaching. 
there's another person we felt would add a unique perspective to this ongoing discussion. Someone with decades of deep experience in both Rwanda and Uganda, having grown up in the latter when it was just opening up to the world. During our travels, we both separately met Praveen Momin, the visionary conservationist who founded Volcanoes Safaris. From its inception in 1997, Volcanoes has pioneered the combination of luxury and regenerative tourism with a focus on protecting great apes. So Praveen, we're really excited to be talking to you, and I know we're catching you in London, but you were born and raised in Uganda. So could you tell us about your first time gorilla trekking and how it led you back to Uganda after a full career in diplomacy in the UK and Europe? Thank you, Catherine. Uh, a short question, but um, a lot of content goes into that. So I went walking in the foothills in the Virunga volcanoes on the Ugandan side in the mid-1960s, and I was 12 years old. Gorillas, of course, have been officially discovered since 1902, but it wasn't until the 50s and 60s that a number of researchers started spending time with them. And gorilla trekking didn't exist, but you could go into the forest where they lived with a local tracker called Ruben and his boss who owned a hotel in the area called the Traveler's Rest. And you could walk in the forest where they were. And occasionally you would get some very tiny glimpse of them. I have to say, I didn't get a glimpse of the gorillas at the time, but this whole area was very magical. It's a very beautiful part of the world. And the whole experience obviously touched me. And that's when I remember hearing about this crazy American woman working in the volcanoes, living <laughs> and researching the gorillas. And that, of course, was Diane Fossey. Of course. Mm-hmm. And so what was she doing at the time? And then did she remain on your radar for the following decades? Or was that just something that was happening while you were then off pursuing the rest of your career? Well, it was one of these kind of episodes of life that at the time was, you know, reasonably important, but not monumental. But later in life, obviously, it became something bigger. And the context of these whole stories is quite important because Africa, as you know, is tremendously rich in wildlife, in ecosystems, in forests, in savannas, in rivers and lakes. Now, other continents also have tremendous geographical and fauna and flora assets. But because of human development, because of industrialization, it's restricted to smaller national parks. In Africa in the 50s and 60s, it was still a very dominant part of the African landscape. It was very easy to access huge amounts of plains, games, forests and wildlife and of course, the Nile, which starts in Uganda and Lake Victoria. And so this was one of the many seminal experiences I was accidentally having in the backyard of my childhood, so to speak. And at a certain point, actually not much later than that, four years later, I had to start moving to England because things were changing in Africa. And a couple of years later, my parents became refugees out of Africa. So for a while, it looked as if the the link with Africa was gone. But by the 1980s, I was working in the European Union. And as it happened, some of my responsibilities included what was happening in South Africa and the apartheid issue. So that brought me back to Africa for work reasons. And that somehow rekindled the connection quite early after we left Africa. And I would go back every few years. And then by the mid-90s, I first climbed the Romanzoris, which are these amazing mountains of the moon, where the gorillas were thought to have lived 2,000 years ago, and then went to the Virunga volcanoes, to this area, that I'd been to in the mid-60s. And the contrast was huge. A lot of the area was now deforested. The development was much greater. Wow, just within like 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. From 1966 to 1995. So wow, yeah, 30, 30 years. years. Wow. So within 30 years, there was a dramatic change. But the biggest change, of course, 
which I had kind of read about and felt but not really fully understood was the Rwandese genocide. And as you know, that happened in 1994 on the Rwanda side of the Virunga volcanoes in, in the country of Rwanda. Over the course then, of just a hundred days, of course, and through the entire region into chaos. Absolutely. So there I am in 1995, making my first visit back to the Virunga volcanoes on the Ugandan side. Mm. But there are 100,000 refugees in the town that I'm visiting, Kisoro. There mm-hmm. are food trucks uh, going in and out, bringing supplies for these people. There are mm-hmm. militias and rebel groups and armies moving around this area. So it was quite a lot to take in, but the overall magic of the area and the overall memories of this area were very strong. And somehow, even though it was a difficult moment, I thought, well, I had to start getting reconnected to this area. And it was kind of just like an, a very strong emotional draw. And within two years, I was setting up Volcano Safaris. Yes. And I know in the 21st century, guerrilla tourism has really become inextricably linked to their protection. And you were a major force who really kickstarted that effort with the inception of Volcano Safaris, which you founded in 1997. So maybe you could talk a bit about why tourists are such an important part of the equation. I think tourism is a controversial thing in many parts of the world. And there are parts of the world that have over-tourism. Venice and Barcelona are two current examples. Mm-hmm. Where Catherine spends some of her time, Bali is another prime example. Oh, yes. so <laughs> Catherine is responsible for these problems. Uh, oh, I don't want to claim it. <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's symbolic of all of us that we hear of interesting, exciting places, wondrous places at the end of the universe. We want to go there. And in some cases, they're still pristine and somebody visiting there is still doesn't really have enormous negative impact. And in other cases, they can get flooded with tourists. And it's a challenge and something to discuss openly and think about, because Bali certainly wasn't like that in the 50s, Mm. nor was Venice and Barcelona. So the reason tourism plays a part in this is is, if you like, the particular microcosm that we are dealing with. So you have these tiny forests where these mountain grillers live. Today, we have just over a thousand grillers left in the world, mountain grillers. Now, the mountain gorilla is the black gorilla. So it's not the gorilla you would see in a U.S. zoo or in a European zoo. What you see in one of those zoos is the brown gorilla, is the western lowland gorilla from the Congo Basin. So there's a thousand mountain gorillas left. When Fossey worked with them in the 60s, it is thought there were about 300. So oh, wow. in one sense, it's a very strong success story. It's a threefold increase from that period. But the issues are, are more complex than that. The forests in which they live are tiny. So the habitat of the Virunga volcanoes and Windy, where the mountain gorilla lives, these four parks, is about 700 square kilometers. That's it? Wow. You You know, that's Yeah, 700 square kilometers. And Eric, if you put that in context, Serengeti is 30,000 square kilometers. Oh, wow. Greater Serengeti. And Yellowstone is 70,000 square kilometers. So it tells you how tiny these forests are. Uh, Of course, it's a tiny number of gorillas that remain. And therefore, if you go into the forests, you are disrupting potentially the forest, the ecosystem, and potentially the gorillas. And Fossey, of course, was concerned about the impact of tourism. And when she was working in the 60s, she writes she's against it because she thinks ultimately Mm -hmm. it will have a negative impact on the gorillas. And I, of course, understand and respect that. But as the people, as Catherine has said, who pioneered gorilla tourism after the Great Lakes conflict settled down in the mid-90s, my experience is now different. Having done this for almost 25 years, I think if you have no tourism, the gorillas would also not survive because they would not have a value. Now, that might seem 
kind of, I don't know, an unpleasant comment. It's to mercenary, make. but it's realistic, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> because for us who are privileged people to go and see the gorilla, and, you know, it's $1,500 a person, as you know, in Rwanda and about half that in Uganda, is a lot of money, but actually it's not a huge amount of money. If you break it down into the number of lunches you can have in a coffee shop in the U.S., it's money that most people can afford. Sure, or just taking the family to Disney World for a few days, basically. Exactly. So relative to that, it's still not a huge amount of money. But for the average person who lives around there, it's vast amounts of money. The local populations in this area are some of the poorest in the world. They're potentially be earning you know, a couple of dollars a day. And any money they can get obviously will help them survive better, which is fine, and live better. And more important, if it's from money from tourism, it will help them support the gorillas. And that's right. the central issue. You're making the link between conservation, communities, and tourism. If mm-hmm. you just have pristine lands where you have wildlife species like the gorillas, okay, that's fine. But looking after these lands needs money. It needs resources. It needs rangers and patrols and all sorts of things. Well, in some way, tourism can contribute to that. It can't pay for all of it but it contributes to a significant amount of the total cost. And it contributes to the well-being and livelihoods of local people. You get into a win-win situation. It contributes in a major way. And having stayed at Virunga Lodge in Rwanda, which is one of your lodges, you know, one of the things I think every guest does is walk into the surrounding villages down that hill. You remember you're at altitude when you're huffing and puffing and seeing some of the projects that you're involved in. I visited the school library and was there for story hour. We were looking at the water tanks that were being installed in various villages. And then also, I believe the lodge helps support a program that provides families with livestock, like a goat per family, I believe. A sheep, pardon me. Seeing as tourism is so linked and such a major economic driver now in the areas where gorillas are and for the communities that surround those parks, what are some of the near-term risks that COVID and the travel restrictions are going to place on these communities and on conservation efforts? And the gorillas. Indeed. No, COVID is a major risk for humans, as we've seen already, of course, and for gorillas. Because gorillas and humans share so much of their DNA, it's about 97% uh, of shared DNA, that any disease we get, we can easily transfer to them. Right. And we've seen that in simple things like coughs and cold and pneumonia or scabies. If a child in the village nearby gets scabies because of malnutrition, a gorilla coming out of the forest looking for food won't necessarily have direct contact with the child, but the gorilla too gets scabies. And then, of course, there's been the major impact of Ebola, which, as you know, has come back and forth in the Congo Basin Forest, not in Uganda and Rwanda, and that has had a devastating impact on gorillas in the past, on the Western Lowland gorillas. So in one of the parks in the Republic of Congo in 2003-2004, about 70% of the population of gorillas was wiped out. What a tragedy. Absolutely. These are things that you have to take seriously and be mindful of. In the case of COVID, just like we're learning for human beings, what the impact is and how it works is still not clear, as we see. Every day, we're kind of concerned about how to deal with it and no total solutions have been found. And therefore, the the potential impact of COVID on the gorillas could be very significant and very strong. I think I'm, of course, not a, a researcher or a scientist, but what the researchers and scientists have said, there are protocols that exist set up by the International Union of Conservation Organizations, and those protocols should be followed. And they talk about, you know, being several meters away from gorillas, now enforcing the wearing of a mask, not going if you're sick, 
behaving in a responsible way, avoiding contact with a gorilla or an infant. I think so far as I understand it, the experts say with those protocols in place, it's okay to go gorilla training. And you make a good point too. I was going to ask about how these countries and parks have been adapting to these new circumstances as far as COVID sort of restrictions and protocols. But in general, in better times or after the worst of this is over, I'm curious as well how the three countries where you find the mountain gorillas, Rwanda, Uganda, and the DRC, kind of work together in their gorilla conservation efforts. And, you know, I know there are differences in the way that they approach hospitality as far as the pricing of their gorilla trekking permits and the kind of level of luxury you find in the lodges. So how does that affect you and those policies as uh, Volcano Safaris? Well, of course, every government is sovereign in its tourism and economic policies. And Rwanda, Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo see their tourism in different ways and have different tourism resources. And... That's why each country prices the parks differently and runs them differently. Having said that, at the same time, the coordination and cooperation between the three countries on gorilla conservation and tourism and habitat protection is very strong and has been you know, strong since, since, if you like, even since the park was set up in, in the 1920s. Sure. And but there certainly- are organizations, you said, that work specifically for the three countries to make sure that everyone is communicating because gorillas don't respect borders either necessarily. So you have to. (laughs) No, precisely. So about 15 years ago, they set up the Transboundary Secretariat for the Virunga Volcanoes and Windy. So there was an institutionalized mechanism to make sure there was coordinated action in relation to all aspects of gorilla blood. Right. So that, that certainly works on a daily basis. The national parks themselves talk daily. I mean, as you say, they're on the three of them are part of the same mountain massive, so they have to talk and they're in touch every day. And gorillas do cross over and suddenly a gorilla group that you see in one country suddenly becomes a group with another nationality. <laughs> and you start seeing it in, a, in another country and paying for another country. And no and passport required. <laughs> or immigration exactly. status. That's right. <laughs> Precisely. And at the same time, there are arrangements between the countries that, you know, if gorilla group A crosses from one side of the border to the other side, you can see it, but the revenue is shared. So those are kind of classic examples of maintaining this cooperation. And then, of course, there are a whole series of international organizations that support the governments of the area. In particular, a number of them, of course, are U.S.-based in origin. There's the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund that carries on the successor work uh, of the Diane Fossey legacy. And actually, their director, Tara Stowinski, is actually in Rwanda this week, I happen to know, because we did a a joint conference last week, and it's her first visit back after the COVID story. So she and Mm, her colleagues are analyzing, with the Rundi's government, of course, exactly how the impact is going. And Mm. there's the Gorilla Doctors, which again is based in the US as an organization, and Wildlife Fund and the African Wildlife Fund. So various organizations bring specialist research and conservation skills to support the governments of the area. But the governments of the area should really be recognized are really doing their best to protect the gorilla, to protect the habitat, to make sure conservation works, tourism is controlled and sensitively controlled, and that communities get a benefit. So each government also gives a certain percentage of money from the gorilla permit for the communities. It's great. To turn to a more personal angle, I was wondering if you could share one or two of your own individual gorilla stories about trekking and seeing them, and then also 
in a broader sense to know a little bit more about what this quest to protect the gorillas has added to your life, what dimensions and how it's enriched you and why it might be important to all of us. No, thank you, Eric. It's been an interesting story that an accidental series of encounters in childhood has led to this now very long connection with a region, with a species, with a number of habitats, Mm -hmm. and to become in a way, you know, the leading private sector advocates for mountain gorillas and great ape ecotourism. If you'd said that to me 25 years ago, then, you know, (laughs) would I be speaking to people like you who take an interest in our work? I would have been slightly skeptical of it. Mm -hmm. I guess what's happened is that, like all of us, I've been born in one part of the world and then come to a major city in the developed world and seen other parts of the world. But I began to realize, as I went back to this part of Africa, how rich it was, how much it had to offer with its wildlife and species, and also how much it had suffered, Mm. how the people of the Great Lakes had been through all these upheavals because of the reasons, politics, and history. And I don't know, I guess I felt a strong empathy with that because our own family has also been part of that experience. So it became a kind of whole series of stories. And my father who worked largely in the colonial period in East Africa, he was obsessed about the wildlife and wilderness. And he spent his whole time, his whole spare time, going to the next spot to see what wildlife there was, what you know, river systems there were, ecosystems there were. And I guess that game has become my legacy. I've taken that forward. Even though I don't live in Africa full time, I spend about half the year there. It's become very important to me to help preserve this area, to preserve these species, to preserve these ecosystems, to champion the forests and also the people. Because I think it's very easy to forget the whole chain. And if you just focus, for example, on the animal, that's not going to protect the gorilla. If you want to save gorillas, as I said in a TED talk some years ago, focus on the communities. Right. Visiting one of yours, like Virunga Lodge, it's so evident the deep roots that you have grown in those communities that surround the lodge. And how involved day-to-day the lodge and the villages are together. And like you said, if you ignored that component, no one would be coming to see the gorillas or enjoying the area. And the people in the area wouldn't find the same value in having those visitors come. No, exactly. So to, for me, and this is a personal journey, and every you know, founder of a company, every company must do it as it fits in with their philosophy. To me, that's become a very much more important and integral part. The lodges are, of course important. When we first built them, there were simple camps. We were surviving in a post-conflict zone. You know, it was survival. Now they're the leading lodges of the area. The lodges, in a way, are only a step for our ecotourism projects. That's the main thing that we're doing. Uh, And that I would like to do more and more of. So, for example, as you said, in Virunga, we have partnerships with the community in terms of sheep, in terms of giving them water tanks, in terms of providing electricity, in terms of training for crafts making, and we want to take that further and set up a sewing school. In Gahinga, on the Ugandan side, we have set up a village for the Batwa community that were thrown out of the forest and were disenfranchised in a way that I think is not respectful in the 21st century. And Chambura in Uganda, we have a major project to help preserve the Chambura Gorge ecosystem, which looks after chimps. So in each of these areas, the lodge is a springboard to what else you can do to support communities and help preserve the area. And I was lucky to visit Shambura Gorge last year and see firsthand some of that as well. I'm curious, since a lot of people are now 
having canceled trips or sitting at home and not able to quite travel yet. Is there anything that we can do as not only tourists, but wildlife lovers, you know, who've either already gone to trek with gorillas and feel that place in their heart that's been taken up by them or have it on their wish lists to help with their conservation and and these efforts now from home? I think there are a number of concrete things and philosophical things one can do. One is, please don't forget the forgotten gorillas of the African forest and the other species. And it's not only the gorillas, of course, there are many other species in other parts of Africa. Yes, secondly, (laughs) golden monkeys and chimpanzees, as you mentioned, but the gorillas... Get all the credit. The gorillas are kind of the obvious icon, the obvious thing we can relate to. But there are other species and other plains games in different parts of Africa. Secondly, don't forget the people of Africa. In the developed world, we're all obviously having major issues economically at the moment. But for those guys in the Great Lakes region that we're talking about, they were on the breadline before. And Mm -hmm. now things are much worse for them. Find a way of supporting the people and the species that are threatened. And those ways can be either going online to your favorite nonprofit and supporting them. And there are a number of gorilla ones, number of chimp ones, number of wildlife ones. You can, if you are interested, also support the Volcano Safaris nonprofit that works in the area. But please don't forget this area. It is having a major, major challenge at the moment. Um, you know, our company, of course, has had challenges, but we are in a privileged position again. We've been able to take various measures to safeguard our future. But for the local people around us, it's been very challenging. And we've, for example, done a number of food drops. We've tried to support some people for medical things. But we're also trying to see what else now we can do to make them survive in this very difficult economic climate. Do you feel like this is the biggest challenge that has faced the gorillas in the last, you know, half century is COVID? Yes, so, you know, those forests where, where they live, I mean, they are, let's put it like this, they're a complex neighborhood. You know, so many things have happened around them. As we discussed the Rwandese genocide and in the run-up to that, the civil war between different elements in Rwanda. And of course, in the 70s, the Amin story. So they've survived a lot. They've survived Ebola. They've survived the militia groups that sometimes turn up in the Eastern DRC. But I think this sustained period of uncertainty, of turbulence, of full control of the forest is, of course, very challenging. And we had a a gorilla, as you know, killed accidentally by a poacher, by a hunter in the forest of Windy in Uganda. And as the hunter said, I wasn't intending to grill the gorilla. I went for small game. Right. The gorilla charged me. And before I knew it, I'd killed the gorilla. So these are kind of issues that would not happen. I'm not saying they would never happen, but they would happen much less if the whole tourism conservation community's chain was working well. I think that point is so important to remember that because tourism is the base economic activity for these areas that right now is such a huge challenge in ways that we might not be aware of, you know, just sitting at home and being able to go out to a supermarket, for instance. But I think your other point too is not to forget the gorillas, but also just as importantly, not to forget those communities is so important just because rather than thinking about it, oh, preserve the gorillas, support these communities, this is a wildlife heritage that all of us can participate in and hopefully we'll get to do so eventually. So if it helps to have a personal dimension to it as well or personal motivations, I want those gorillas to be around when I'm able to travel again so I can go see them again. And it it has to everything to do with them, but it also has to do with travelers being able for generations to come to be able to go there and enjoy and enjoy these things and spending time there. Yeah, I want my children to be able to see the gorillas in person and not just have it be this legend, you know, like a dinosaur. 
Exactly. No, I think that's exactly it. You know, as both of you said, the gorillas belong to all of us. We must all do our part to look after them. And the people on the ground who can do the most are the local communities, but they need us to support them in order to do that. You'd also asked about my own gorilla experiences. Uh-huh. Well, I've had a number, I'm privileged to say, in the different forests in Uganda, Rwanda, and the DRC. And I've also gone to see the, the Western lowland gorilla in different Congo Basin countries in Gabon and the CAR. I think, you know, wildlife viewing is always interesting, isn't it? It's a startling and a special experience. I guess with the gorillas, it's particularly interesting is because one minute you're in this serene, pristine forest, which is a very beautiful, easy forest, as, as you've seen. And you kind of imagine nobody's ever been there before. And then suddenly you're told, round the corner is the gorilla group. And you don't know quite how many there will be, where they will be. But, you know, potentially there might be anything between 10 or 30 gorillas. And obviously they don't line up in a straight line to say good morning to you. They're all kind of, you know, hiding in the bushes, up a tree, munching some celery. The kids are often playing who can wallop the other one harder. You know, so it's kind of like a family scene. And I sometimes, you know, tease American friends that it's kind of like an American family marooned in the forest, just watching television and eating popcorn. (laughs) And that's what it seems like. And every time it's a very different experience because just as we have the curiosity about the gorillas and who they are and why are they behaving like this, you feel the same about them. They stare at you in the eyes and you're, of course, not supposed to stare back. They look at you very, very quizzically and say, you know, who are you exactly? Do we know each other? You know, what are you, you doing You look here? like I mean, me. Why don't you have any fur? <laughs> yeah. So there's a major bond going on. It's very special and very unusual. And every day the interaction is different. You know, some days it can be rainy, some days it can be sunny, some days they're in a, in a meadow, some days they're more in the bamboo, some days up trees. So every day the interaction is really different and special. And you savor it. My favorite gorilla group is in Mugahinga, this place I went to with my father when I was 12 years old, because there's one gorilla group that's habituated. And it's just, it's a very playful, relaxed gorilla group. So they kind of almost put on a show for you, just to show, Wonderful. you know, we're not bothered about you. We don't know who you are. We're okay. We're having a ball. That sounds incredible. And I've gone three times, which I feel so privileged to be able to have done that. And each time is completely one of a kind. There's no repeat experiences. It's not like going on a ride at a theme park where you are you know what to expect. It is complete surprise and just awe and incredible. I'm so, so jealous. I'm really that you, grateful that <laughs> you've gotten to go three times, Catherine. Hopefully we'll all get to go together sometime in the near future when things begin to open up again. You know, everything is now open. All the regional airports of East Africa are open, so you can get there from the U.S. and other parts of the world, so that's already something. All the airlines, of course, operate their protocols. The government of Rwanda and Uganda have protocols for when you arrive and how to make sure you have the relevant tests. The gorilla parks are open. New protocols are in place for gorillas and guests, so to speak. I hope the gorillas follow their part of the, the deal as well. And we are now getting you know, a trickle of clients back every day. We've had a, Our first clients came in from New York a couple of months ago. And they had quite a journey because of airplanes and disruptions on the way. But they thought it was the most magical thing they'd ever done, especially now, because they were the only people that day with the gorillas. We've had some honeymoon couples come in. Wow. We've had, you know, family groups come in. So people are really enjoying it. And it's also the moment, you know, people are worried about health, that you take over a whole lodge with a family group, with a group of friends. And you also go and take over a gorilla group, so to speak, for the day. So it keeps you in your cocoon and... And it also helps 
to really have a more uplifting experience because it's a whole group of you doing these things together. So if you're adventurous and willing to travel right now, it sounds like now is the time to go see the gorillas because you get a more private experience. And that's the point behind Conscious Traveler too, is to choose the experience you want, invest the time, the effort, and the thought into doing it. And then it really, it sounds like it can pay off, especially if it's as an experience as singular as seeing the gorillas. Praveen, thank you so much for your time and for telling us both about your own fascinating personal history but about the things that travelers can keep in mind and should know about the region before visiting, as well as conservation efforts that are going on. Great, see you there. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Talking to Praveen just takes me back to the three wonderful days I stayed at Virunga Lodge last year. It also brings me hope for the mountain gorillas' futures, since there are such incredible people dedicating their lives to ensuring they not only survive, but thrive, and that tourism can be such a big, positive part of that. It's certainly inspiring and makes me want to take more action from afar, especially now when the population is, like us humans, facing such new and overwhelming challenges. It's one more way in which the gorillas really are so much like us. For more information on the organizations and people featured in this episode, visit ConsciousTravelerPod.com and follow us on Instagram at ConsciousTravelerPod. We'd also like to give special thanks to Emmanuel Bugingo of Partners for Conservation. He spoke to us on background about their work with the people who live around Rwanda's Volcanoes National Park and focuses on three main priorities, public health, literacy, and conservation education and employment. We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter, who composed the music you heard in this episode. 